Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. And look, I'll tell you what, episode number 70 of In The Shift is a good one. We're talking about purity culture and we get into it. We have uh, on the show today Meg Cowan and this is the this is the first of two conversations I'm going to have with Meg. Today's conversation is about the impact and yes, we might even say harm of purity culture on people's uh, lives, their sex lives, their relationships, their sense of self and identity, relationships to their own body. And uh, the second part of the conversation, which will come on another uh, episode, is going to be about how to heal and process through purity culture and how do we move forward in our lives and our lives of sex and relationships and so on. Uh, look, we, we cover a lot of ground here and and get into the, we might say, the nitty gritty of, of what purity culture is, uh, what it what it does, the impact that it has. And this is a really important conversation in the context of this year. One of the things that has come up so many times as we've kind of processed our way through this conversation on toxic church cultures, and obviously there's been a particular focus on megachurch culture this year because of the kinds of stories that have come out. And uh, one of the things that whenever I ran like an Instagram you know, question or some kind of survey or what do people want resources on or what do people need to talk about, one of the things that keeps coming up is purity culture. So this is it. We're talking about it. And it's good. This is a good conversation. Meg is a sex and relationships coach based here in New Zealand. And and she, you know, works with a lot of people who are processing their way through uh, deconstruction, moving through or beyond purity culture, uh, whilst then trying to navigate what that means for their lives and sex and relationships and whether faith still plays a role in that conversation. So, so she works a lot in this area. She she helps a lot of people process this kind of stuff. Uh, as you'll hear, she, she talks at the end about the fact she's got a, a shame-free sex course that she uh, facilitates or that she offers. Uh, and um, you'll hear some details. There's some details in the show notes and also at the end of this podcast episode about where you can find that stuff. So I'd highly recommend checking Meg Cowan out in the work that she does and, and we have a great conversation in this episode. Uh, we we do acknowledge that in many respects the framework of purity culture is one of gender binaries. It's one of male and female and their specific roles and the way that they are understood within the kind of a certain form of kind of evangelical charismatic Pentecostal purity uh, and relationships kind of context or paradigm. And so there are some things that we don't get into today in terms of like maybe the, the LGBT conversation uh, as much, uh, although that's kind of sitting there. Purity culture really just had no space for that conversation at all. So we're focusing our attention here uh, primarily on the way purity culture sets up men and women to relate to one another. Uh, but we've got some episodes coming as well, uh, exploring and unpacking further the whole question and conversation around LGBT, uh, affirmation and inclusion and identity within the church and within faith circles and so on. So that's coming too. Uh, so this is this is good, necessary work, and you know we really uh, do. I try and ask as many questions as I can think of, and Meg um, very generously answers them for us. The um, the other thing, of course, you know you can do is get in touch with us. Feedback at intheshift uh, That's email. You can find us on the social medias and uh, the interwebs intheshift dot com, or go to Instagram, find intheshift there. You will uh, also know that you can support. The ongoing work of In The Shift to help make this sustainable because that would be, you know, appreciated uh, <laughs> to help keep this keep this thing running. Um, and so you can do that by going to patreon.com slash In The Shift. A huge just thank you and shout out to the numbers of people who have signed up this year to support In The Shift there. And as you may know, if you've been listening along to In The Shift, uh, our patrons get access 
to a to a patron only Discord as well, which is a is a, like an online space where we can chat and converse together and share stories and ideas and thoughts um, as we're processing our way through this. So, all of that said, this is episode seventy of In the Shift. Let's get into it. So today on the podcast, I'm talking with Meg Cowan, Sex and Relationships Coach, and we're going to be talking all about purity culture and the conversation with faith and deconstruction, and um, it's going to be good. Welcome, Meg. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Um, so I'd love to begin, I guess, just in terms of context by by asking, you know, what your kind of story, um, or maybe a brief version of it at least, uh, your, your own story of kind of faith in church and how you kind of find your way to where you are in life. Yeah, sure. So my mum and dad got saved when I was three. And so that was a pretty radical transformation for them. Um, And so I grew up as a good Baptist girl. And uh, all the way through until I was about 10 to 12 when mum and dad left the church. Um, And so I like to say I've been deconstructing since I was 10 to 12. Um, But those teen years were really a mix of, I didn't have to go to church, but I did go to youth group. So Good girl at youth group, few parties and things like that on on the other week um, weekend nights. So it was a bit of a mix, um, but I I threw myself back into evangelical church at probably eighteen. Uh, I'd travelled for a year, um, gone on on a year long missions gap year to save the world. Um, like a good Christian girl, and so I did that, and then I came back and moved to Auckland and. Um, yeah, was an evangelical Pentecostal church expression from then. Uh, through my 20s, I uh, got married a um, couple of years after I got home. So married at 20 uh, and the impurity culture really informed my teen years, even mm. though I didn't have to go to church. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, spent a lot of my time, well, pretty much all of my 20s in church. I was in church ministry at a large Pentecostal church for five years on staff. Um, My husband ended up on staff as a graphic designer there for eight years. uh, And then he left, but burnt out. Um, I'd left to have babies, so I had an easy out, really. Um, And then we travelled and the deconstruction fully started to unravel mm. um, after he left. I had a lot of questions even before he left, uh, but that's when it really started to unravel. So my my early 30s were full deconstruction territory. So, right. Yeah. Um, well, welcome. Welcome to the deconstruction. <laughs> uh, my, it was my 30s as well. Uh, and, you know, I, I hear that a little bit. Um, in my 20s, we're very deep in the... Very deep yeah. in the system. Yeah. Um, so how did you end up doing the work you do now then? Um, and so I know you work in the, the arena of sex and relationships with with people, um, but you do seem to have a, a particular focus or at least uh, seem to work with, with people in the space of kind of deconstruction and purity, sort of processing their own experience of the church and the purity culture and faith and where that intersects with uh, their relationships and with their, their sex and sexuality and stuff. Um, how did you end up in, in that kind of work? Yeah, so I went through my own deconstruction process and honestly our marriage was struggling. 
So we did a lot of work around that and healing that um, along that deconstruction process. And at one point, a good number of years ago, I put out a message. At the time, we were still actively in church. And so I put out a message to a bunch of my good Christian friends. And I said, hey, I don't know if we talk about sex quite right or enough or is anybody else feeling like this? And I thought I'd start a group with maybe, you know, I sent it to 10 friends. I thought maybe four or five of them would be brave enough to say, yeah, let's let's start a little Facebook thread or a group or something and let's chat about it. But I said at the end of the message, if you want to, if you know anybody else, just feel free to chuck them this link. I've set up this group. And so let's just see what happens. Let's have the conversations. Because I'd listened to a TED talk that said, if women talk about their sex life, just talk about it. Don't even offer each other any advice. If they just talk about their experiences, they improve their satisfaction in their sex life by something like 25%. So I was like, well, I'm up for a 25% improvement in in (laughs) the state of my sex life, right? And so put that out there. And in four days, I had almost 400 women inside this Facebook group. And I went oh shit, <laughs> and, um, and thought, okay, I, I don't have the skills to, um, to carry this. Mm. Like I, we had some conversation and then I, I realised how much need there was. Um, and it started off for married Christian women um, just because I felt like that was safest and mm. that was the conversation I was prepared to have at the time. Uh, but then it evolved pretty quickly into some of the things that I've been thinking about in, deconstruct and, uh, in deconstruction as well. Um, and so... I paused all of that, put it on hold, took some of my previous qualifications and got some specific qualifications around sex and relationships coaching Mm -hmm. to bring in with that. And that's kind of where it kicked off from. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, Yeah, really so interesting. Um, Let's think a bit about purity culture then and perhaps as a way of starting to talk about it. Like, I guess, what do you understand by that term and and where do you see it kind of coming from in the form that many of us have experienced it? Yeah, right. Well, I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can talk about purity, right? Um, I think I, I remember an episode of yours, but you actually talked about the concept of purity. But when I say purity culture, I'm really referring to what is the cultural phenomenon that a lot of us as 80s babies, 90s teens experienced. So, You can go back in history and you can see how purity and virginity and those sorts of things, they were about lineage and inheritance and ownership Mm. and woman as property and all that Mm. kind of stuff. So that's not really new. But, um, and well, I think it's interesting actually to talk there about some of the church fathers like St. Augustine and Mm. guys like that who had this idea and lived in a time with that real aestheticism, you know? So let's separate and the mind and the body are two different things. The mind and the intellect are higher. That's where, you you know, we've got our orders of nuns and priests and all of this. Mm. So they're they're abstaining from anything physical, um, denying the body and prizing the intellect and the spirit, right? So... So that's kind of where it comes from. But what we saw in the 50s, 60s was a bit of a perfect storm starting to brew. So we had um, we had the war. We're post-depression, right? We had the war. Uh, we had uh, birth control for mm-hmm. women, yep. sexual revolution. Mm. So there's a lot more free love out there. Uh, we had the rise of various different substances and psychedelics and mm. things like that becoming a little bit more uh, common. Uh, we had 
uh, post-war unplanned pregnancies, substance stuff. Um, then if you go to America, we also have the moral majority mm. using abortion as a voter issue mm-hmm. to mobilise a voter base, right? Yeah. Um, and then we had the AIDS epidemic of the 80s and all of the things, all of these things create this perfect storm that the church somehow wants to respond to, mm. Right. And so a lot of people probably had great intentions in talking about let's have abstinence-only education, mm. let's not have all these unplanned pregnancies, let's help people who are dealing with substance abuse issues and, you know, PTSD coming back from the war and all these different things. Yeah. Really good intentions for a lot of people. Um, but we also have the internet and suddenly we've now got this mass distribution of these ideas. Mm. So... Now, us in New Zealand, we're suddenly exposed to all of these um, resources and ideas and thoughts that are coming out of places like America. Mm. And a lot of those things that were coming out from the Christian church were the True Love Waits movement and focus on the family. And so we've got this, uh, this massive spread of these ideas and these resources that we didn't have access to previously. Mm. And Um, Like in America, there was $1.5 billion in federal funding given to, um, over about 26 years, given to abstinence-only sex ed. So no comprehensive scientific stuff, abstinence-only sex ed. So that's that's kind of where um, a lot of what we experience as purity culture has come from, this this perfect storm. And it really is a cultural phenomenon. And it seems like, I mean... Money's obviously connected to that as well. Like it becomes its own little industry, right? At times, and then you got, um, so you got kind of product that spins out of that as well. Absolutely, you know, and um, rings, rings, oh, yeah. purity balls, yeah. oh, purity books, balls, books like you didn't have a ball. No, I didn't have a purity. I ball. didn't have a ball actually, but I did have a <laughs> ring, and I did sign a contract. Right, okay. that was a part of my yeah. experience. Yeah, uh, I do remember reading a James Dobson book for young men when I was when I was a teenager. And it was, I remember there was a part in it because he has a, has a part in it where he um, essentially draws a line and he's like, above the line, these are the things you can do with someone that you're dating and below the line, these are the things you can't do. And below the line was touching a girl's hair. <laughs> and I was so how dangerous. Like, struck by this. <laughs> and then he went into this big sort of rant about how like erotic touching a woman's hair is and, and stuff. And I was like, I mean, I'm only 16. But this seems a bit weird. <laughs> hair was a big thing. I actually... I actually remember one of my kind of teenage rebellions because I had waist length hair at 14 and I went to a youth group event and one of the guys there told me that hair was, hair was the crown and glory of a woman and so I came back next week with it all cut to my ears. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, so I, I feel like I've always walked this very tricky line in terms of purity culture mm. of um, wanting to be a good girl but then also really wrestling with some of these concepts mm. that we were presented with. So, mm. like hair touching. <laughs> um, so, when it comes to, to, I guess, to where this lands in people's lives or like what the what we're seeing the fruit of this is in people's lives because not, you know, a lot of people aren't having conversations about their sex lives with lots of people that they know. Mm. Um and so one of the things about this area, it seems to me, is that you can teach a bunch of stuff, but it's actually that the, if there's bad fruit, it, it, it can be often very hidden because it's mm. in people's kind of secret lives or private lives that they don't even talk about, which means you then just go on spouting the same stuff, even if it's being harmful, telling yourself you're doing a good job. So I'm, I'm really interested, I guess, in, in talking with you in terms of how you see 
this landing in people's lives. So, and the kind mm. of people that you're talking with, how has um, how has purity culture impacted on the real world of sex and relationships for people um, that you see? Yeah, so interesting that you bring up that it's hidden because it often is and that's what shame does. You know, Mm. it keeps things in the dark and then things in the dark grow bigger and bigger and you feel like maybe I'm the broken one. Maybe I'm the one that's not normal. And that even that feeling is perpetuated by the things that purity culture taught us because we were taught that if you follow the rules, if you do the right things and you wait to have sex until you get married, then your sex life will be blessed by God. Mm. So you get to marriage, potentially, if that's where you get to, you get to marriage and your sex life sucks for some reason. You're like, oh, it must be me. I must be broken because God blesses sex in Mm. marriage, so Mm. I should be fine. Mm. Um, So it shows up in like just years and years of waiting and not talking even to people's own partners, Mm. you know, just Mm. feeling like, well, something's wrong with me that I don't feel the desire or I feel broken or wrong. Mm. Um, There's, uh, you know, untreated sexual dysfunction. So things like vaginismus and dyspareunia, so painful intercourse Mm -hmm. that is, that is just avoided, not spoken about. Um, And it doesn't help that even the medical profession often doesn't take into consideration the effect that religion has on things like dyspareunia and vaginismus. Um, Like a pelvic floor therapist that I was speaking to says, oh, we've known it for years. But often if you go to your GP, they won't think, oh, you're having painful sex because you grew up in church, right? So... um, Right. So that's I mean, interesting. How, how do you um, so so? What's the connection between those? So, growing up in church and the religious thing, and the, and the painful sex and and vaginismus and, and stuff like that. What's what's kind of going on there? Do you think in terms of that that's creating that correlation or that connection? Yeah. So, um, vaginismus and dyspareunia as as issues that people are facing. There's a lot of things that could contribute to it, mm-hmm. um, but what we do know is that religious women are more likely, there's more prevalence of it among religious women. Now, that could be because they're bracing their pelvic floor a a lot more intensely. But um, vaginismus is actually involuntary muscular spasm of the vaginal canal. So it's not something that they're consciously doing. It's something that, you know, the bracing Mm. is happening involuntarily in the body. Um, and and pinpointing exactly why, exactly which part of purity culture made your body do that. I don't know how to do sure. that. But um, but we do know that it's more prevalent in religious women. Wow. So there you go. Um, so I guess that 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 brings up the question for me of, of how how you see um the stuff playing out uh, differently for men and women mm-hmm. in this space, like. Um, how to purity culture, and, and you know, I'm, I'm mindful, and we've talked before about the fact that this is, at least today, is is largely about the kind of the male female relationship within mm. the church because that's been the the primary context for purity culture because the kind of the LGBT conversation wasn't even allowed to participate in the conversation ab- about this. So we're yeah. going to talk a bit about the kind of the the gender roles within um, purity culture conversations today. Aware that some of that conversation also is going to be had and and, and will be had. Yeah. Um, sure. But in terms of how you see this stuff landing with with men and women, um, yeah, what 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 do you see that's kind of um, perhaps different between mm. men and women's experience or the impact that it has on on them? Is it disproportionate? Do you think it is disproportionate? Um, so there's a <laughs> yeah. great book if 
you know, for anyone who's listening who wants a bit of reading around this, there's a great book called Pure by Linda K. Klein, um, where she goes through and she's got loads of great research, but then she's also got people's stories and how it's affected people. Um, and some of the stats that she talks about are the fact that about 95, 94, 95% of women will say that they were negatively affected by the messages of purity culture versus around 25% of men. Right. So, so big difference. That's not to say men aren't affected. I think that actually perhaps if men understood a little bit more about that, they would go, oh yeah, actually I was affected by mm, that and maybe mm. answer that question differently. But um, there is a disparity of how men and women have been affected. The biggest thing that I see that comes up time and time again with clients is that women feel like they are inherently broken or bad. And that comes from those messages that women have been taught through purity culture that their body is dangerous, that mm. they are, you know, it's the virgin or whore dichotomy. It's the, um, like, you're a dangerous temptress. You need to be either pure and chaste or you're, if you're sexual, you're a dangerous temptress. Right. Until you get married, of course, at which point you should be all the sexual things that your husband would ever desire. Mm. Um, what I see there is that women feel like they are inherently bad or mm. wrong versus men often feeling like, oh, maybe that experience I had wasn't good or maybe I uh, did something wrong in that scenario versus mm -hmm. I am bad and I right. am wrong. Right, Yeah. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. So the, so the behavior in some sense from men, they might recognize, oh, I did this thing that was outside the bounds of purity culture and, and that might have created some kind of internal conflict. Um, versus the I am the bad thing in, in a sense, yeah. And that's something that came up in, in recent conversation with Jess and Shalomi even yeah, in, in terms correct. of understanding the impact it has on and that almost impossible position, like you're talking about the virgin whore dichotomy mm -hmm. there. Maybe mm -hmm. you can even unpack that a, a little bit more. Like how how do you see that kind of playing out in, in terms of people's r real experience? Because I think it's something they kind of, they didn't use that language necessarily, but that kind of um, talking about how you're sort of in this impossible situation where you, you can't be sexual enough and you're also too sexual in, this, mm, in a sense mm. or, or what's going on there. Do you, do you have any other thoughts about that? Yeah. So, well, it makes me think of the, the youth pastor that talks about his smoking hot wife. You know, the, the that's traditional... A, yeah, that's such a thing. Or even like, like pastors generally, like I read like often when I used to read Christian books um, <laughs> by pastors um, and on the back of them they'd often be like, yeah, um, you know, John and his incredibly gorgeous wife, Veronica, you know, <laughs> and the youth pastors, it was always, yeah, the smoking hot wife. Yeah, yeah my sure. smoking hot wife. Yeah. But, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to talk to youth about how to have boundaries and to, and to not think about having sex and all of this sort of stuff. But then we're going to get up and we're going to overly sexualize the woman that we have married. And we're mm. going to talk about how smoking hot they are. Mm. Um, that whole, <sighs> there's, a, there's a really tricky tension for women to walk of being sexually attractive and desirable to catch a good man, you know, mm -hmm. but then not too much. And, and that's a very, very tricky line to mm -hmm. walk. Um, this idea as well that you're supposed to suppress your sexual urges, your sexual desires, and then you flick a switch and when you get married you're good to go. It just doesn't work like that. Um, arousal doesn't work like that. Desire doesn't work like that. Um, but that is the, that's the system. That is the way it's set up in purity culture. Mm. 
So, um, so this kind of thing, I think, and I hear people mention this a lot, and you've mentioned it a couple of times already. This idea that, like, essentially, sexual desire or desire really um, for, for another, <laughs> um, or just to experience pleasure, um, is is bad, mm. bad, 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 the whole time, <laughs> until suddenly now you're married, and now it's um, and now it's good, and not just good, now it's yeah, like you say, um divinely um you know i remember talking to a friend and i'd been married for a couple of years and he was about to get married and he was talking about how he couldn't wait till the first time that they had sex because you know it was going to be this incredible divine experience and transcendent in every way and i was like mm, yeah yeah <laughs> it might be yeah and sometimes <laughs> it's awkward and sometimes it's messy and sometimes yeah. it's funny and like i don't think we got the full picture yeah it yeah. was just don't 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 because it's dangerous. So yeah. actually you should fear it a little bit. You should fear yourself, your body, woman's bodies. Um, but then once you're married, oh my goodness, it's going to be divine. The heavens will open, the angels will sing. Yeah. We won't tell you about all the practicalities and mm. the mess and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but sex can be so many things. It can be awkward and messy and fun. And, you know, there's, yeah, we, we missed a whole lot out in that conversation. So does that kind of, you know, um, impossible, again, impossible, like flicking of the switch mm. um, create kind of downstream impact then for people in terms of their their ongoing kind of relationship with each other? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the other thing that also comes into play here is then because of the way we've taught women that men are sexual, that they're visual, that they have a sexual need, all of these things that women don't have, um, then not only is there this, you're supposed to flick the switch and suddenly be great at it and know exactly what to do and meet all these needs that he has. Um, but then there's this feeling of obligation as well that comes in. Like mm. you need to meet his needs. You need to be, you know, being a good good wife um, and you don't leave a man with unmet needs. And some of this stuff is not said really directly. Mm. Some of it is, um, yeah. but then some of it is really subtle as well. Um, and the downstream effects of that, um, it affects arousal, um, it affects the the communication between husband and wife. Mm. Um, and obviously we're talking in very heteronormative terms here because mm. that's the structure we were given by purity culture. So totally understand that there's... Um, you know, this is a bigger discussion for the yeah. LGBT community and things like that. But, um, you know, w those obligation messages have a huge effect, not just that you should flick the switch and be suddenly good at this, but you should also meet the needs. So even mm. if you're not feeling like you're good at it or even if you're not feeling desire, you should still do it anyway. Right. Yeah. And so then there's there's an unhealthy power dynamic going on there, right? Mm. Um. Mm. Uh, is that something I mean I'm, I'm just thinking as we talk about that just the way in which that power dynamic as a as kind of a structure if you like for for a relationship seems deeply problematic yeah <laughs> to yeah. put it lightly I guess <laughs> well well here's the thing I mean that power dynamic is actually the same dynamic that operates in rape culture mm. so it's very like to say that it's a problematic is a light way to put it really yeah. it enables a, the potential for abuse not mm. saying that that everyone who has a complementarian view of relationships is abusing but it it sets things up that that's more possible mm. um and what's interesting is that actually if you look at the science and the research around this and you look at 
uh, couples who have an equal power dynamic. Mm-hmm. Men are actually more satisfied with their mm. relationships when there's an equal power mm. dynamic. It's not just about women being happy mm. or unhappy, but men actually feel more satisfied in their relationship and in their sex life when there's an equal dynamic. Um, but that's not what we have in purity culture and church culture. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, I think yeah, the whole structure has been bad for everybody, you know? Um and so, you know, that's it's um that's really good. In terms of like that, um you kind of mentioned before the different um versions of of gender that are like presented in the space. Like um so so the kind of cliches or stereotypes perhaps that that I saw a lot when I was Especially actually, because I was in, you know, it's like small town Pentecostal church where no one was even having these conversations at all except occasional book you might read. It was only when I came to the kind of, as a young adult, into the mega church space and then these conversations were kind of going on all, all the time and relationships conferences and at, at our kind of young adult youth, there are a lot of relationships nights and sex mm, nights, and mm. talk, you know, talking about all of these different things, um, which coming from, you know, a youth group of like three people when I was a teenager was a big change for me. Um but, you know, so some of the, like, stereotypes of, like, so men are visual, women aren't, or mm. um, masturbation's a thing that guys do and, and, and not never. a thing that women do, or um, men want, uh, I think um, Jess mentioned in, in our conversation, like, men want respect, but women want love and, and oh, stuff like that. Yes. Um, how do you feel? How do you feel about those different, like, gender, um, presented gender norms in terms of... Well, we can burn them all if that's an option. I'm really happy to just burn all of those because they're, okay. they're, they're pretty rubbish. They're pretty rubbish. They're pretty rubbish. So, oh, which one do we start on? So the gender norms... Um, so let's talk about men are visual and women are not. Yeah. Um, okay, so there's a really interesting meta-analysis, so a big compilation of a whole lot of different studies because this is a narrative that has been spoken about for a long time mm. that men are visual and um and women are not when it comes to sex. But actually in in all of this analysis of all these studies, what you see coming through is that men and women actually showed an increased activation in their technical here, but their cortical and their subcortical brain regions. So those are the parts that it, we think are involved in the response to visual sexual stimulus. Mm -hmm. So men and women actually both showed increased activation there. What what the researchers came to out of that analysis is that actually we need a new way of looking at sexual research that considers the social context and how people are socialised and Mm. how men and women are socialised. And so when you take that information and you take it back to the church and we look at the hyper-masculine version of um, biblical manhood that we're given and we look at the ultra-feminine, pure, chaste, submissive version of womanhood Mm -hmm. that we're given, it's the wild at heart versus the captivating. It's, you know, it's these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, You take that science and you go, wow, what did we do? in the church that we set men and women up to believe these things. Mm. Um, yeah, that's the first one. <laughs> Which one do we go to next? Um, oh, what was the thing? Wild at Heart was kind of like men want a, uh, uh, an adventure to go on and a princess to rescue or something. I can't remember. That's it. Um, and I just read that book and I was like, there's so many hunting analogies yeah. for, for manhood. <laughs> and I was like, I don't, really like, I, don't, I don't really like hunting. I've never really been hunting. Can't relate. Am I not a man? I like to play the piano. <laughs> you know? oh. 
But this is the same with our church conferences. Yeah, totally. You know, yeah. our, our men's conferences are called Stronger and there's a lot of sports and yeah. we're talking about sex and lust and managing. I mean, I didn't personally go to a men's conference, but this is what I'm told by my husband. And where is the range of expression of yeah. what it means to be masculine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, even in my own dynamic with my husband, I'm pretty forthright and outspoken. And he's like, he knows his mind, but he he's not as outspoken as I am. And there was this expectation that men were supposed to be the leaders and mm. that presented in a very particular way. Mm. So, you know, you go to these different conferences and of course women get jewellery and, um, you know, all the very lovely woman things that you're supposed to love. And, and um, yeah, it sets us up for, for a whole lot of pain. The very first men's conference I ever went to was because um, I was <laughs> they do have to be kind of, you know, manly sounding names, but the name they came up with because they thought it sounded strong was mandate. Like we've got a mandate, you know, okay. but also it's got the word man in it. Yeah. Didn't really think about the fact that mandate, mandate. Might, um, might have different connotations. So I remember because I was still <laughs> a very conservative young man at my work at science and I thought I'd better go on and register for my, men, for my church men's conference and went to mandate.com. In, in my work office, and then it was it was not that was not the church conference website. That was uh, something, there was something else going on. Oh on right, okay, you got more than you bargained. I did. Yeah. Um, but now it makes me laugh. <laughs> um, <laughs> the uh, okay, so so um, what, what, what? A couple of the others. Men want respect. Women want love. Yeah. Right. Okay. So the author of that book, Love and Respect, actually, if you. If you want to really get into this love and respect thing, there's a woman called Sheila Ray Gregory. She's not the author. Um, Sheila Ray Gregory runs a, um, it's called Bear Marriage, I think. And she's a Christian woman who has written a book called The Great Sex Rescue. And a lot of that research that she did for that book and a lot of the conversation came because she actually did a review of this book, Love and Respect by... Um, Oh, I've forgotten his name, Enric something. I'll look it up and you can put it in the, in the notes. But um, he wrote the book Love and Respect and she did a review of it and how harmful it was. And then out of that, everything spiraled and, and she ended up writing this really great book um, mm -hmm. called The Great Sex Rescue. But this concept of love and respect, firstly, I'd love to see some science that says that women don't want some respect yeah. um, and that men don't want some love. Mm. Um, but, but some of the issues with those concepts are that it's not actually giving much space for women and the fact that they have sexual needs, um, the fact that women might need autonomy or agency. Mm. Um, the, way that, the way that concept has been so broadly spread really is through that book, Love and Respect. Mm. Um, and when you break down the teaching in that book and the way he completely disregards women, um, yeah, I know, I know that there are people out there who have actually read the book and found it useful mm -hmm. for their marriage. Um, but the thing is, it, if you are in a generally good relationship, probably it's not going to be super, super harmful if mm. you're married to a reasonably good man who's, you know, not abusing you. You're probably going to be like, yeah, I could respect him and he could love me. Like, mm -hmm. But it's when you get into those spaces where there are people taking advantage of that respect dynamic mm. and you will do what I say. And, um, yeah, it's super, it's super dangerous. But to get a really good rundown on that one, I really recommend Sheila's book, um, 
the great six rescue. Yeah. From a Christian framework. Yeah, yeah. But, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Um, okay. A couple of others we had in there. One was um, men like masturbation, but that's not something women even talk about. Well, I don't know from anyone that I um, that I would have talked to that, that women's conferences ever had like whole sessions devoted to talking about like masturbation, for example. I don't remember any. No. no the men's conferences definitely yeah. did. <laughs> so what's going on there? I, I remember one youth event that I went to <clears throat> where they did actually say that sometimes women, but definitely that was sinful. Um, so again, it comes back to this idea that men have a sexual urge that's uncontrollable, which I just, I think it's so hilarious that we say men can lead all the departments, they can lead all the different parts of church, they can be the pastors, but we can't expect them to lead themselves in their own bodies and, mm. and manage that mm. sexual desire. But anyway, um, <laughs> So, I mean, socially, this is even a, a new thing that women are talking about masturbation. Okay. So, to be fair, it's not just the church yeah. that was, you know. Um, but but women's expression of sexuality, a lot of that stuff that came out of the, you know, the free love movement and once we had access to contraception and those sorts of things, women suddenly had more sexual options. Mm. And so suddenly we're able to start being a little bit braver and a little bit more honest about sexual desire. Um, so, and the church is, was even behind the eight ball with that. Um, you know, we were even slower to have mm. those conversations. I mm. think it, it's maybe slowly starting to happen. Um, but it certainly wasn't a comfortable conversation mm. that women had sexual desire at all. Mm. Mm. And then I guess in purity culture, even if they were to talk about it, it would be, don't, don't do it. Well, don't do it. Which is what the hour-long you know, conference session for the men was about. Yeah. Um, all the ways to avoid it. Um, well, because the conversation was about lust, right? And yeah. we were all supposed to be avoiding lust. Yeah. Um, so it, even if there had been a conversation about do women masturbate, um, well, even if they do, they shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. If, you know, yeah. and make sure you repent. And do you think, like, <clears throat> if you think about um, kind of desire in, let's say especially because within this, con like within the church where where the kind of the, the marriage line becomes the line after which you're now allowed to enjoy yourself mm -hmm. uh, and each other. Um, <clears throat> you know, is is the kind of, is there something lost for people in not having the freedom to actually figure out their own bodies and like what desire and kind of pleasure and stuff looks like for them? Like, do, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts about that. Absolutely. Something's lost. Um, and it, it starts really young. It starts even um, in a very non-sexual way with our toddlers. When, pe when parents have shame about sex or sexuality, and they see a child just really curiously, completely normal developmental thing that their hand reaches down and discovers their genitals. Mm. And the parent says, oh, don't do that. Oh, we don't do that. Or it's, you know, it's dirty. Oh, ugh, don't touch. These sorts of things. And, and shame starts in there. And, and even at that age, little children are getting the message that, oh, my, my genitals are dangerous or bad or mm. dirty. Um, and then you take that through to puberty, and you've got kids who are like just pumping full of hormones. Like, what do I do with all these feelings? And, oh, look, I, you know, these things happen when I touch my body. Mm. But, no, you shouldn't touch your body. Suppress that. Mm. Don't touch. 
Um, and you take that all the way through to when you suddenly get married and, or, you know, you magically get married and you're supposed to then know how your body works, how mm. it responds to touch, um, when you've not had that experience of knowing, oh, well, this is what arousal feels like. Um, yeah. Um, one of the other um, sort of dichotomies or, or presented um, pictures was always done to a lot of, I think the same diet, it's the same meme, essentially it was like meme before memes were like a thing, <laughs> was, was put up every relationships conference I ever went to and everybody would laugh um, and that was basically like a picture of two switchboards, I don't know if you've seen that one and on the, on the male one is just the one switch which is on and off and on the female one there's like loads of knobs and, <laughs> and switches and things and everybody would laugh away about how you know complicated women were and how simple men were. Uh, okay, so how do you feel about that one? So in terms of sex, I think this one is really interesting. Um, and it actually comes from a lack of information about how desire and arousal actually works. So when we talk about desire and arousal, there's what's called the dual control mechanism. You can have um, spontaneous desire. And that is desire that Bang, kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, Emily Nagowski in her book, Come As You Are, which is not a Christian book, it's a great, great title though. Um, her book, Come As You Are, is an excellent read if you're trying to understand how desire and arousal work. Mm -hmm. um, but she describes it as a lightning bolt to the genitals. It's like, bang, I want to have some sex. Versus uh, responsive desire, which is that you need a sexually relevant stimulus to then for arousal to kick off and for you to head down that on that path. Um, and so when we look at this overly simplistic switchboard picture, yes. it just it doesn't take into consideration the fact that actually men have all of these ways that they could also experience desire. Mm, they could mm. um they may be more likely to have spontaneous desire, which is the bang, I'd like to have sex now, but they could also have responsive desire. And actually, the longer you go in a relationship, the more likely it is that you'll move from the spontaneous desire into the responsive desire mm. category anyway. Um, and women are a little more likely to sit in that responsive desire category rather than spontaneous. Um, Generalisations there, but mm. it's, a, it's a little bit tipped more towards women. Um, so I, I just think it's so ridiculous that, and because then there's also within that dual control mechanism, there's also the fact that men and women can have what's called brakes and accelerators, things that are going to really slow down their arousal and their desire, and then things that are going to speed it up. Um, and so it's a matrix more than a, a switchboard for both men and women. Mm, mm. And it seems like, you know, a part of that kind of, and this is all sort of associated with or sort of folds within purity culture. These things kind of all feed each other. But the the gender stereotyping kind of certainly seems to connect very much with that. And because that switchboard kind of metaphor has the man as being this very kind of simple animal who knows what he wants and needs to get it kind of thing. And the woman as impossibly complicated almost. You know, like that that, that was kind of always the sort of the, the apparently the humorous part of that was just sort of how impossibly complicated the woman was. Um, which, you know. I think that does a huge disservice to men as well as mm, to women. Mm. Like it doesn't give the the scope for men to be creatures of nuance and, and variance and difference. I, I think it's sad for men mm. as well as for women. And do we just see the impact of all of that on kind of 
male and female enjoyment of sex itself. Like, does this all of this impact on? I mean, I'm, I'm already seeing the ways in which we're, we're talking about that it does. But but what do you see there in terms of that? Yeah. So another thing about purity culture that I think impact, impacts the actual satisfaction of couples. Um, is the fact that we have this gold standard of penis and vagina intercourse, mm. right? Um, so not only do we have all the social conditioning, we have all of these ways that we've been taught, all of these, um, you know, ridiculous gender stereotypes and lack of understanding about arousal and desire. We've then also got this gold standard <laughs> that, well, that's the kind of sex that you're supposed to be having once you're married. And it's far more likely that a person with male genitals is going to orgasm in in those scenarios than a female, mm-hmm. person with female anatomy. Um, so we then have an orgasm gap and then we don't have, because it thanks to purity culture and all of these different things we've discussed, we don't have the skills to talk about uh, how, how does a woman actually speak up about her pain or her pleasure or her preferences. Mm. Um, how... If the man's the head of the home and he's got a need, uh, how do we ever prioritise her pleasure? Because he's happy, his needs are being met. Now, I do realise that for a lot of people who grew up in purity culture, they married good men that, you know, their men generally care and want their partners to enjoy this process. But sometimes they don't know how to get them there because they never had comprehensive sex ed. And then you've got women who don't know how to speak about what's pleasurable, what's not, how they're feeling, their pain, all those sorts of things. Um, So definitely all of these things come together and create this very uh, complicated web that can lead to huge amounts of sexual dissatisfaction. Mm. Mm. Um, In terms of kind of how how this spins out into, I guess, some other arenas of, of life beyond kind of um, sex, perhaps. How do you see all of this kind of impacting, even on, uh, in these kind of notions of men and women, and and mm. um, and stuff, in terms of like male female friendship, more more generally within these spaces. Like, do you see do you see this impact on on that domain of life as well? Yeah, I, I mean, I've experienced it in my own world. I've I've heard pastors talk about there's no such thing as a platonic relationship yeah. between a man yeah, and a woman. And I think that's, again, it's sad. It's sad for men and it's sad for women because we miss out on getting a really beautiful, full experience of life and of friendship. And, um, you know, you've got your Billy Graham rules that men are not to be trusted. We should always have the door open if we are having a conversation. Um, And so there's a huge distrust there Mm. from both sides, for both parties. Uh, you know, men not trusting themselves, but then also f- being fearful of women and their bodies and and um, potential sexual chemistry that could happen if they're in a room with a door shut, you know? <laughs> yeah, which kind of, I don't know, um, it's sexual. It's funny, isn't it? Because the kind of the very kind of conservative controlling paradigm ends up sexualizing sort of everyone and everything all the time, ironically, which is almost like the... They seem like counterintuitive to each other or paradoxical to each other, but it seems like that's because, you know, there was a, in the church office where I worked for quite some time, there was a lift that went up two, two floors. There's only only two floors. But um, but you couldn't, you know, there was a period, I think it was only for a while, but there was a rule for a while that you couldn't, you know, be alone with another woman 
you'll be alone. Wow, and in the lift. lift. I'm like, I mean, it's a sl- it was a slow lift. I mean, be- if it was 10 flights of stairs, maybe you'd have enough time to get busy, but two. Uh, no, you know, two flights of stairs. That's, that's not, um, that, that seems like it's verging on, you know, and, and, and what kind of hypersexualized hyper view do you have for people that they're not going to be able to, like, keep off each other in, in, in the sort of 15 seconds it's going to take from get the ground to second floor. And how sad, how sad mm. that you have to have such a level of distrust of your colleagues. Yeah, yeah. Like, how sad that, oh, I, I just think it's really sad. Yeah. And it's, um, in some ways, it strikes me as being kind of perhaps connected to the fact that maybe, maybe sex is seen as the greatest sin, the greatest danger. You know, I think that rule came in after someone on staff had had an affair, mm. and so not with another person on staff, but that but that cheated on their partner, and so mm. this kind of fear and control of we can't let sex destroy this thing that we're building, you know, and so we have to um, control every I don't know every possible arena of temptation, and that is like when that's the way you're you're functioning together as a community, that seems a bit sad. Yeah, and I mean, I can see where some of these ideas that have come from that you should be, I remember a pastor talking to us about being above reproach, you know, it was in relation to drinking alcohol that, mm. you know, you shouldn't be seen to be drinking alcohol because then you might, someone might assume that you were drunk. And so I, I can see how it comes from that similar concept of mm. you should be above reproach, be careful who you're seen to be in close quarters with in case anyone thinks you're having an affair or in case anything does happen. Mm. Um, yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, I suppose, is in all of this is how, and maybe this is a, this is a question to, to bring this part of our conversation toward an end, unless there's some other things you, you want to say, but I know we've got a, um, we're going to have a follow-up conversation to this one. Sure. Uh, all about kind of what do we do with all of this? How do we move yeah. forward? How do we actually yeah. heal from some of this stuff? Um, but <clears throat> what what do you see or what do you think about in terms of how this um, affects our relationship to our own body, uh, maybe even to issues of like body image? And like are there, are there connections between some of this purity culture stuff and some of the negative relationships we might have with, with our own body? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So huge connections between mm. purity culture and diet culture. Right. Um, those ideas of attractiveness, those ideas of being desirable as a wife. You know, you're you're not just supposed to be pure and chaste. You're also supposed to look a certain way. Um, you know, sexually attractive but still modest. Again, such hard lines to walk yeah. there. Um, and so, so on one hand, we're we're controlling and we're suppressing and we're trying to contort our body into either the right size or the right behavior or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Um, but along with that suppression, we're also, we're just not trusting ourselves. Mm. We're not uh, speaking particularly for women. I know this does affect men too, but particularly for women, this intersection of diet culture and, mm. you know, so, the, our sense of interception or like understanding and awareness of what's actually happening inside our bodies. So we're ignoring cues of hunger. We're, you know, all of these things, we're pressing down desire. We're pressing down our hunger cues to make sure we're the right size and, and look the right shape. And um, we're wearing things that actually maybe we don't feel naturally that comfortable in, but mm-hmm. they're modest. So that's what right. we, that's what we choose. Mm. Um, so we're, 
constantly not trusting the messages that our own body is giving us. We're constantly pushing down those messages. And then, so you can see how this has a massive effect. Like you you go into a sexual relationship once you are having a sexual relationship. How do you actually then trust those feelings or those sensations that you're getting? Because you've got no track record with yourself of Mm. learning to read or understand those feelings that come up in you. Um, So, yeah, Mm. it's massive. I um, I'm sure that every not you know that there are plenty of um, dudes who don't feel this way, but I, I I do know that some for for some I think one of the things that happens for for guys in that space is that essentially their bodies are the site of their temptation, especially as like probably teenage and young adult, especially in that space where they're supposed to be suppressing all of that desire and there's all of that raging hormonal stuff going on in them, especially as teenagers, you know. Uh, that their body is essentially the thing that's their own body is like the thing that's Betrays causing them, them. causing them to <laughs> to to sin and causing God to be unhappy with them. That feels like that that can't be a very healthy thing. Even if they kind of have a bravado, maybe that covers over some of that. I, I wonder about like what that does to like men in that space who grow up with that with that feeling. I'm curious about it. I suppose. Yeah, it's a it's a really good. I mean, when I talked about that stat of. Uh, women, 95% of women saying they're affected by purity culture and mm. 25% of men. I really genuinely think that if we could dig around in that statistic, if we could really ask men a little bit more about that, I think we'd find that's actually much higher. Mm. Mm. So this is good. This is a good conversation. It's, it's you know, There's it's hard. A lot. There's a lot. There's a lot. And, and the impact on people will, you know, is is widespread and varied. Um, is there anything else you want to say? I know, so we're going to go on and have a conversation about about um, about sort of where to from here next time. But is there anything else you kind of want to say at this point about about any of this that you feel you haven't said? I think I I would say if you feel uh, frustrated when you hear this conversation, yeah, totally get it. It's really understandable. But also, there might be a sense of grief, like far out. I can't believe I was taught all of this stuff and maybe I'm not the one that's broken. Maybe the system that taught me is broken. Mm. Um, This is a big conversation and it reaches into really intimate parts of our life, you know, how we feel about ourselves, our bodies, our partner, all these things, Um, our parents that taught us what they taught us, all these things. It's so far-reaching. So just I guess all I want to say at this point is, Go gently with yourself mm. in this conversation. Um, it's really understandable and totally to be expected if you feel anger, if you feel frustration, if you feel sadness, all of those things. And and give space to sit with that. We'll, we'll talk. We're going to talk healing in the next conversation. But um, yeah, that's yeah. You're not broken. That's really great. I know um, that you have got some some work you do in the space as well in terms of. Um, you talk about the stuff on social media and also you got some courses, I think, that, that you do. Where can people find that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram at Meg C. Cowan uh, and then you can also find me at MegCowan.com and there's info about the course there. I've got a course called the Shame Free Sex Course. So 
breaks down a whole lot of the stuff. Purity culture, where it came from, how do we reclaim agency? What about some of the basic comprehensive sex ed that we maybe didn't get that we're too scared to admit we don't know some of that stuff? How do you communicate with a partner about this? Um, so there's a whole lot of stuff on there. And um, yeah, also really open if people want to flick me a message as well on Instagram or on the emails. Awesome. Thank you so much. So there we go. A conversation with me, Cowan. Uh, lots in there to chew on. We'll be back with part two of this conversation in an upcoming episode of In The Shift. Uh, as always, thanks to Reese Michelle for taking the audiological signals that are produced by our voices in these computers and microphones and turning them into something that sounds pleasing to your ears. Until next time.